Very good. Thank you for thank you for inviting me to speak to your group, um, and thank you thank you to everybody who's attending here. Um, I'm delighted delighted to be able to speak with you today, or this or this evening, as I understand there's it's in the evening where you are. Um, I do I do many things, uh, but I have this very nice job where I get to try to promote best practices in pharmacological therapy for schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And in a particular focus of my center is um, is on first episode or early psychosis care. And if you could please advance to the next slide. Or can I, there we go. Um, so this is this is just a slide from uh, about where I work. It's called the Best Practices and Treatments, uh, Best Practices in Schizophrenia Treatment Center. We are funded by a foundation which has a marvelous goal of trying to broadly help as many people um, who are affected by schizophrenia as quickly as possible. Um, with a goal that big, there's a lot of paths that one could take, um, and I'm just grateful that they are continuing to do this and allowing me to, to do these things. So let's move to the next slide. And I, I, I'm going to try to do a big job in a small period of time. I want to speak to you about assessment of people that are experiencing recent onset of schizophrenia-like psychosis and give you some guidance as to where the field thinks the best treatment strategies are. So this is the outline of my talk, and I will just move on to each of these bullet points going, going forward. So I, every time I think about how to explain to somebody about treating someone with a recent, recent onset of psychosis, I keep coming back to this theme that, that I think the first thing is to be optimistic about, things, about recovery. Um, there is tremendous amount of stigma associated with this family of diagnoses and the experience of psychosis is frightening, alienating, um, it is, is really disturbing to many people who experience it. So the fact that somebody who's experiencing these symptoms has come to you is, is a major accomplishment. And I think, and I'll, I'll show you shortly, that we have every reason to expect that we can we can help them to achieve recovery as defined by a meaningful improvement in symptom level with an ability to engage in social and occupational functions that are meaningful to the person and we can also realistically aim for and should aim for remission which is defined broadly as essentially the absence of symptoms um, so let's move on to the next slide and i think that I make a big deal of saying that we should establish a culture of optimism from the very beginning because sadly for more than the last century, this field of psychiatry um, has done a very bad job of, of, of educating people or understanding what's happening in schizophrenia. Uh, if you look to the, to the very beginning when ML Kreplin was coming up with the concept of dementia precox, he, he defined this essentially as a kind of illness that occurs early in life and never gets better. Kreplin would, um, would write that if somebody recovered from schizophrenia, 
they probably were misdiagnosed. So he, he, he had a tautology going on whereby he would define a condition that is defined by permanence. And if anybody got better, then he would, they were out of his consideration as having the right diagnosis. That concept of a permanently progressive and disabling illness was really enshrined throughout the 20th century in, in the DSM, among other things. If you look at DSM-3, you see essentially a repeat of what Kreplin was doing in the 1880s, which is to cause you to wonder if somebody's getting better, whether they really had schizophrenia. Um, and we also have this sense of pessimism deeply ingrained in our medical culture because for most of the time that we have known about schizophrenia, we have not known what to do about it. So we had very bad treatments. We, we did things which were actually opposite of therapeutic. In fact, if you put people into um, hospitals for a long period of time, tell them that they're not gonna get better and don't give them opportunity to, to grow, that, that is really devastating. So we had, the, but, but the mistreatment of people with, with schizophrenia reinforced this notion that people never get better. Then sadly, when we found medicines that, started, that actually seemed to work, we again had no idea how to use these well. And so the, we tended to overdose, we, we actually tended to massively overdose people we gave them a bunch of side effects and when when you get to these higher doses of antipsychotic drugs you actually impair cognition and you impair motivation and you 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 work against recovery so um we did many things badly in the beginning and that leads to let's go to the next slide that leads to um patrick mcgory who's a leader in early psychosis interventions um and you, you may have heard of his name um, he, he wrote in 2013 that a lot of what, what we assume is reason to be pessimism may in fact be the fact that we have just had a century of detecting things way, way too late, um, medicating people excessively or reactively and not really paying attention to um, their mental life and their occupational and social well-being. So let's move on to the next one. Um, these are, these are just some data to show you that recovery actually is an expected outcome. These are mostly long-term follow-ups, um, from a lot of natural cohorts. And you'll see that recovery broadly defined ranges from about half of people to 80% of people. Let's go to the next slide. So recovery again is, um, symptoms are improved. They may or may not be completely resolved, um, but functioning has improved. If we then look at a more stringent definition of remission in which there are symptom severity is minimal or absent for six months or more, then again, you find reason for optimism. Here's a bunch of studies looking at remission as an outcome, and you'll see in column number three that this is a much shorter term follow-up period. And if you look in the fourth column, you'll see that depending upon the study, we could achieve remission in between a third to three quarters of people with schizophrenia. So let's move to the next slide. Um, these data that I showed you, a lot of this was from a long time ago when we still didn't have the benefit of, when we didn't have the benefit of modern knowledge about um, good practices in schizophrenia care. So if we could achieve those levels of outcomes with maybe okay or moderate level of sophistication in intervention, 
we can reasonably expect that if we can find people early in the course of their illness and give them comprehensive good care, we could achieve those outcomes or probably even better. So um, again, I make a big deal of this because I, as one who's done psychiatry for 20 years, the, the culture has absorbed a sense of pessimism. And um, I think in many, I, I meet not a few clinicians who aim for things like, I'm going to keep my client out of the hospital or I'm going to keep him or her from uh, harming self or others. We really should and could, we, we can and should um, aim for a complete recovery. Understanding that not everybody's going to achieve that, but you won't achieve ideal goals unless you actually aim for them and seriously pursue them. So um, we can, in fact, control many things, as this slide points out. Um, if you look at twin studies, you, we, we observe that if, if, a, if, if one twin has schizophrenia, then an identical twin has only a 50% chance of developing schizophrenia. This very robust data point is interpreted as, um, as the environment has a lot to do with the development of illness. And we also know that environment or social factors have a lot to do with illness expression and, and outcomes. And many of these things we and our patients actually can control. So we can, we, we as clinicians can uh, evaluate our attitudes towards illness and prognosis, and we can help our patients to do the same. We can um, ensure that side effects are prevented or minimized to the point that they are not bothersome in comparison to the therapeutic gains. And in doing this, we will promote adherence to treatment. We can um, we cannot prescribe drugs that are going to um, increase the risk of psychosis, and we can counsel our patients about the substances that may destabilize them. We can and should um, bolster a supportive network around our clients um, and attend to their physical health and work and activity. All these things are significantly uh, related to symptom expression and to outcome. And again, these are things that we can control. So it's just another point of we have reasons to be optimistic and to shoot for full recovery and treatment. So let's move on to the next, the next section, uh, which is to, um, so after we have established that we, we will aim for full recovery and that we instruct our patients that there are many reasons to be optimistic about things, we need to make sure that we actually have the right diagnosis um, because the wrong treatment Without the right diagnosis, then the treatment is, is going to be ineffective, obviously. So I want to just, I know you all know this, but I want to state this explicitly. Schizophrenia is a diagnosis of exclusion. It says there in blue in the DSM that the symptoms uh, shouldn't be, I mean, don't make the diagnosis if the symptoms are the results of drugs, drug withdrawal, or another medical condition. So we're instructed not explicitly, but the meaning of that is that we need to rule out other possible causes of schizophrenia-like symptoms. And the next slide will show you there are many of them. So this is, this is a partial list of illnesses that are treatable that can present with a schizophrenia-like presentation. Let's go to the next slide. And these are more illnesses which are um, not readily treatable 
uh, well, some of them may or may not be, but um, but uh, still more illnesses. Um, it's even if we're searching for illnesses that don't have a treatment, it's still worthwhile to do the search because then we can tell somebody that they have a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia or Pick's disease rather than telling them that they have schizophrenia, um, giving them a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia in this example. Uh, will open up avenues of treatment and uh, cue future clinicians to not treat them as with medicines that are probably going to be harmful. Um, so the next slide. And, and so I, I showed you a long list and um, each of those separate illnesses is relatively rare, but in aggregate, uh, we find that the presence of illness that either directly causes the symptoms of schizophrenia or significantly exacerbates them, these are relatively common. Um, estimates of prevalence of these kinds of illnesses range from on the low end, just under 6%, to a study not on this list um, that 20% may have conditions which are exacerbating their illnesses. So um, pay attention to bullet point number one. Uh, in this 1968 study by Johnson, 80% of these medically relevant diagnoses were missed at the initial assessment. Um, and my practice, which largely involves consultation on cases that have not gone well, um, it's not uncommon that a person has not had a complete medical workup at the beginning of illness and you still find um, medical explanations that either are entirely causative or significantly are negative, significantly negative impact symptom expression. So, um, so it's worth looking. Let's go to the next slide. Um, this is just to highlight one of the bullet points from earlier. In a 1987 study of people with first episode psychosis, these are the diseases that were found that were causative of the illness. So just to illustrate, it's worthwhile to do a thorough investigation. Um, and, I, and sadly, then if you go looking for like, what's the right workup, like what is the algorithm or the recommended guideline, uh, good luck to you because you're not going to find consensus. It's bizarre to me, but that's the way it is. Um, these authors, Centre et al, uh, put together a panel of what various national organizations have recommended and um, the most extensive of them are on the right with the Canadian Psychiatric Association and the American Psychiatric Association. So, um, so there's that, and I, I will make sure that one way or other that you can have these slides so you can look for them yourself. Let's go to the next slide, please. Um, my, there are a few other attempts to define what would be a reasonable initial treatment or initial medical workup. Um, this is, my version of, of what seems to be worthwhile. A lot of these things are things that you probably already think about. The, the stuff that I think is not so common, at least in the cases that I review, are screens for immunologic, autoimmune or inflammatory illnesses. So the simple screens would be a sedimentation rate or C-reactive protein. Um, and I've thrown on thyroid peroxidase and tissue transglutaminase, an anti-nuclear antibody, because Hashimoto's disease um, celiac disease and lupus-like illnesses are not uncommon um, as in, with initial presentations of psychosis. Um, you, can, you can search for several deficiency states, but B12 and vitamin D show up as relevant. And it is always, 
at least in, in, in the United States, we um, in many quarters are not screening for syphilis, uh, but it still is out there and it's uh, easy, easy to do one-time test. Um, and the, the, the fluorescent treponemal antibody, FTA, has higher specificity. So if you have a choice, go with FTA over the rapid plasma reaginant test. Um, let's move to the next slide and talk about imaging. I, I, I recommend and others recommend to do a chest x-ray um, because cancers and in one case sarcoidosis was found as a cause of, of psychosis. The opinions seem to vary about brain imaging. The American Psychiatric Association says that says to do brain imaging, quote, if indicated. They don't explain what is an indication. Many clinicians assume that that means if there's a neurological indication, and many clinicians go further to think that a neurological indication is like a movement or coordination or a um, focal neurologic sign. Um, I would like to remind you that psychosis is a neurological symptom. Psychosis, generally speaking, um, comes from dysfunction in temporal cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, or frontal cortex. Um, and it's a neurological sign of dysfunction that in these brain regions, temporal, cingulate, and frontal, are not directly connected with motor systems. So psychosis may be the only indication of neurological or structural um, impediments in these, in these areas. So psychosis is, in my view, strongly a neurological symptom that itself is a neurological indication for brain imaging. Um, and the most likely, it, to the extent that you'll find a lesion which is relevant, the most likely relevant lesion is gonna be a meningioma in those structures that I mentioned. Um, next slide, please. And EEG is, is very debatable. Um, you'll find if you, if you routinely do EEGs on people with psychosis, a lot of them are going to have not normal EEGs. It's going to be very, very difficult to know what to make of that. Um, the, in, in many cases of abnormal EEG, there's not clearly epileptiform activity. And if you're suspecting epilepsy, you can often miss it by doing EEG. So I, I personally don't do EEG as a routine test because you wind up with general nonspecific slowing or nonspecific abnormalities, which just which it's very difficult to go from an abnormal finding to a identifiable explanation. Um, however, if there are things, if you strongly suspect things like epileptiform activity, um, then by all means, you know, go and do that. So I think that's the end of my talking on the, um, on the testing part. Let's move on to the next, the next bullet point for how to treat somebody with, with first episode schizophrenia, and that is treat all the facets of illness. Just as I know you all know this, but again, as a reminder, um, psychosis and schizophrenia, it, it, it affects pervasively many facets of experience and life. And so treatment needs to address those. By psychological factors, um, I'm, I'm saying that people should have evidence-based psychotherapy. Um, there is a fairly good body of data that says that CBT for psychosis is helpful, um, although other forms of psychotherapy are as well. Um, psychological, living with psychosis for any length of time begins, um, it, has, it has a lot of ramifications. 
the unfamiliarity with a symptom can lead to a reaction like, this is horrible, my brain is hopelessly broken, my life is over. Um, all those psychological processes or those cognitions are probably um, amenable to some reframing. So rather than saying, my brain is broken, one could say, there's a part of my brain which is generating false signals that I don't have to listen to. And in doing that sort of thing, you reduce the overall stress, which then in turn makes symptoms less likely to be expressed. Uh, families, again, uh, families like everybody else are usually not prepared to think about psychosis or schizophrenia and are likely to buy into a lot of cultural myths or misgivings around it. And as I'll say again later, family attitudes and beliefs are your patient's attitudes and beliefs. And it's worthwhile to, um, to explain what's happening, to reduce the level of stress, foster support in the, in the family unit. And again, that translates into better outcomes and life quality. There are numerous, there are, there's um, a growing body of work in what's called cognitive remediation. So there's a possibility to identify which areas of cognition might be impaired by illness and then to do practice um, to try to um, strengthen those areas. And, and this is called cognitive remediation therapy. Cognitive remediation by itself does very little good. You have to pair this with getting out in the world um, and, and you know, exploring in social relationships or educational or occupational settings. When you combine those two, then you see very good effect sizes. Um, very important to not forget to attend to physical health. Our schizophrenia in general is associated with higher risk for glucose intolerance and type two diabetes. And a lot of medicines will make that much worse. So we should do everything in our power to not add to medical burdens and um, a person who maintains physical health and is able to be active will have, again, a better life quality and better, better symptom trajectory. Um, it's especially very important in early psychosis that we don't throw in the towel and say, you'll never be able to work again. We actually really should hold the expectation that you're going to get better and be able to resume your life, whether that's completing your education or returning to work or something like this. This is for almost all cases, a goal that should be held out and, and, and pursued. And of course, giving medication. Um, and the, the general, I read this in a paper one time and I thought this is beautifully put. Um, from the patient point of view, the, the, the people who have made very good recoveries have, have, have spoken to, there's, there's a theme that comes up in many of these individuals and that is that we focused on me, we focused on recovery, more or less we put the illness in brackets, we knew it was there, but we didn't really focus on this. We did you know, acknowledge it, but we focused meanwhile on everything that was good and, and making things better. So that is, um, I think, a good, a good guideline. So let's move on to talking about educating and aligning with family. Um, as I said, family attitudes are absolutely, if they're not already your patient's attitudes, soon will be. Um, and it's very important to realize that family members are your strongest allies or your greatest impediments to recovery. You'll want to bring them in, um, help them um, with reducing stigma, um, reducing the, 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 the fear around this, explaining what's going on and how they can help. And they will um, provide you with great information about how things are going. Um, they're a great ally and it's worthwhile. It's just, just to mention 
don't forget them. Um, I'm going to go through quickly a educational tool that I developed that you guys that I give to anybody who asks. Um, this is this designed to be printed as a foldable form. Page one simply says we're going to talk about how medicines work and how they help. On the right hand side, there's an explanation. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm here in this slide um, trying to present psychosis as a neurological phenomenon, and I'm making use of a, of a theory called aberrant salience hypothesis. So the, the main points of this are that um, psychosis happens when the brain generates misperceptions and the conscious mind in, makes explanations for these misperceptions, and dopamine is highly involved in generating these misperceived signals. Um, also, one in 11 people, um, at least in American studies, um, will report that they've experienced one or more features of psychosis during their lifetime. So I try to normalize the experience here. And the next slide, um, next slide just illustrates um, aberrant salience hypothesis at work. Um, our brain has a gazillion pieces of information to deal with, and we have to focus on things that are relevant. The focusing on relevance is actually done behind the scenes automatically, um, and uh, dopamine is involved in those networks that signal salience or relevance. So in this example, I have a person walking into an office, and there are many things in the background. Um, highlighted in green, dopamine is trying to alert the person that this woman inviting you inside is the relevant stimulus. But when we have too many things that are tagged as equally important, this becomes confusing. So then the conscious mind has to say, why is it that I perceive that clock and that plant as just as important as this woman here? Are they connected somehow behind the scenes? Are they telepathically driven? Um, do I have special powers of observation now? And these kinds of explanations, again, they, they, they make sense. The, the mind comes up with these kinds of explanations to make sense of why now does all this stuff seem like so important. Um, and if we know that dopamine is driving a lot of that, then the next panel on the right will explain how drugs that modify dopamine signals will allow the brain to do what it's supposed to do um, more efficiently. And then I wanted to have more pages, but I limited myself to four. I just wanted to point out that we, 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 we use medicines to help, um, that we can and do want to minimize side effects and to talk with your doctor because we're on your side. And I wanna emphasize that point here. Um, so many people with schizophrenia are so very afraid of talking with doctors about side effects from what I, from what I hear, from what I read, from the discussions that I'm privy to, um, there is um, a common belief is that if I tell them I have side effects, they're going to put me in the hospital, they're going to give me worse medications or something like that. Um, so I would like you to just assume that your patients are having side effects and that they're not telling you about them. So I, uh, it's very worthwhile to make sure to be very open about this and to invite them to the discussion and uh, let them know that, you know, how these are working and that dosing them well um, with attention to side effects will, um, will improve their life. So let's move on to the next slide, talking about medication selection. Um, we're going to work now within the frame of the dopamine hypothesis for psychosis. Dopamine, dopamine hyperactivity is probably behind 70% to 80% of schizophrenias. And that being said, 
any drug that blocks dopamine signals is probably going to be helpful. However, having said that, the bullet point on the list are drugs that we actually have real data in first episode cohorts. So if you want to align with what's been demonstrated to work, then those lists of, um, those lists of medicines are the ones that you can choose from. But again, if there's some other reason why uh, medicine on, not on the list looks compelling, probably it should work as well. Let's move to the next slide. Um, so I showed you this list, but not all drugs are created equally. And um, consensus here is that um, there are some that are better or, or not. So haloperidol looks to be very, very good at relieving initial onsets of psychosis, but there might be a bit of an edge in terms of longer term benefits from second generation drugs. So Haldol has been deprioritized. Uh, and chlorpromazine and olanzapine have a host of less desirable side effects that usually relegate them to second-line second status. Clozapine actually is very, very helpful, um, even for a first episode, but all other drugs are also very helpful. So clozapine doesn't distinguish itself as a, in a first episode cohort as being better than others because the response rate to other drugs is very high. So numerically speaking, it doesn't, it doesn't beat everybody else at that stage. So it's reserved for um, treatment resistant cases. So next slide. So having done that prioritization, then these are the lists. Um, this actually, I'm sorry, the, I generated this from United States list. Um, perhaps you guys have access to, um, to uh, the name blanking on me now. Um, it'll come back to me. Let's go, hold on a second. Um, I hate it when that happens. I'm a self-ride. Um, so amisulpiride, uh, perhaps you have access to it. And I, I personally, from what I've read about it, would add this to as a first-tier medication, though I don't think it comes in a long injectable form, which makes it to me a little bit less desirable. Okay, let's move on to the next slide, please. Um, so those are those are the lists of medicines, and now let's talk about dosing. And here's an interesting point. Um, when a pharmaceutical company goes to test their drug, they're going to do two things. They're going to, one, choose doses that are on the far end of dose occupancy curve. So the doses that are chosen are going to saturate the D2 receptor target. So they're basically, I'm saying, they're going to be toward the high end. Um, and secondly, the average clinical trial participant has been ill for 13 years. So they're not, these clinical trials actually are not representative of people with first episode psychosis. Um, turns out that people who are naive to antipsychotic drugs and are having a first episode of schizophrenia tend to respond to doses of medications which are much lower than published, published um, recommendations. The NIH in its Navigate study uh, made a manual for clinicians and they suggested that you should think about using 50% or so of the standard dose. And I'm gonna show you data that say that it may even be lower than that. Um, so, um, we have an ability through using PET scanning to visualize how, what percentage of dopamine receptors are occupied by an antipsychotic drug, and lots of these studies have led to this, this general guideline that you want to target between 60 to 75% occupancy of the D2 receptor. 
If you do that, you will see antipsychotic response, but will tend not to have, as a general rule, extrapyramidal side effects. EPS tend to occur when you get 80% or higher dopamine receptor blockade. Um, the number, the antipsychotic efficacy window, the green bar, might actually be a bit lower, um, according to some studies in first episode cases. But again, this is a general guideline. So let's go to the next slide then. Um, so keep in mind that 60%, 70% is your target. Um, here are actual dose occupancy data for risperidone. So you'll see that by the time you get to two milligrams, two things are happening. This curve is beginning to flatten. So between two and three milligrams, you're not gonna get a whole lot of additional occupancy, but already at two milligrams, you are close to the range that is thought to be the sweet spot for um, antipsychotic efficacy while minimizing EPS. Let's go to the next slide. Um, here we see a, another view of a risperidone dose response curve, also compared to an olanzapine dose, I mean, sorry, dose occupancy curve. So for risperidone, again, we look at the two milligram dose and we see in this study, it may be, it, it's approaching 60%. And certainly by four milligrams, we're up to 70%. So two to four milligrams, in other words, between 50% to 60% of a typical dose, um, gets you at a, at a level which is likely to be therapeutic. Uh, for olanzapine, you'll see that you achieve 60% occupancy at about five milligrams. And certainly before you get to 10, you know, before, under 10 milligrams, you'll be in that region. So many people tend to dose olanzapine at 15 or 20 milligrams a day. Uh, for a first episode person, you could, you could reasonably introduce this at five milligrams a day. Let's move to the next slide. Um, aripiprazole is an amazingly high, high affinity drug at D2 receptors. In this study, you'll see that at two milligrams, you have achieved 70% occupancy at the D2 receptor. Um, and between 10 and 30 milligrams, you see really no additional benefit in terms of D2 receptor occupancy. So as I said earlier, drug companies know what these curves look like before they introduce drugs for clinical testing. And if you're a pharmaceutical company, you are gonna to want to dose your aripiprazole between 15 and 30 milligrams. Um, because if you dose it at two milligrams, you might not cover all those receptors. So the point being that, um, 50 to 60% of a standard dose would be five milligrams or so. And if you, um, so it's reasonable to start somebody at two milligrams of aripiprazole, at least for the first week, um, assuming that they are not um, in some form of behavioral crisis. So but point being that doses that are effective are lower than what we're used to. Next slide, please. Um, haloperidol um, from, cases that I review, I see lots of dosing at um, 10 milligrams a day or higher. Uh, this curve reminds you that you can achieve 60% occupancy at two and a half milligrams per day. Um, next slide. And looking at studies of first episode cases, um, it's been shown that at least in some studies, we achieve therapeutic response at 40% D2 receptor occupancy, which was um, equivalent of two and a half or one milligram of haloperidol. Again, dosing um, can be much lower for this group and also side effects are more likely to happen at standard dosing. And you don't want to give the first impression of a drug to be one that is awful because patients come to us already thinking that what we're going to do to them is awful. And if we give them a drug that is dosed too high, 
and gives them a horrible side effect experience. This confirms their um, beliefs about the evils of our drugs and makes them less likely to be engaged in treatment going forward. So next slide, please. Um, how long should, so if you've chosen, so let's say you've, you've established that we have every reason to be optimistic. You have brought in the patient and their family to try to demystify and destigmatize and reduce the fear around psychotic illness. You've explained how medicines work. You've chosen a medicine from a first tier list. You've dosed it appropriately low and the side effect burden is minimal. At this point then, how long should you continue this before um, you either see results or you switch to something different? In um, studies of first episode cohorts, cohorts they're basically the bottom line consensus recommendation is up to 16 weeks. Um, there's, a, there's a group of people within schizophrenia that have very good response. There are, pause. Within schizophrenia, you'll see different patterns of different time patterns of medication response. There's a subset of people with schizophrenia that has a very good response within a few days to a few weeks. There's another subset of people with schizophrenia that has a very good response, but it takes them a few months to achieve that. Um, and then there's a group that has no good response to initial trials, and about half of them will become clozapine responders and about half of them won't. So I just told you that there are four group, four types of schizophrenia based upon drug response. Um, so you, the consensus is give it, give it a couple of months, maybe up to 16 weeks. Nobody has any data about um, whether you can expect further benefit after, after four, four months of treatment. Next slide, please. Um, so let's assume that you've treated somebody for several months and they have not gotten better. Um, let's assume that you chose another medicine from the list and you also dosed it appropriately and they're not in recovery. At this point, you're looking at treatment non-response or what a, a term which I think is very badly chosen, treatment resistance. Um, and I'm going to talk about treatment non-response now. So I want to remind, I want to just, um, this may be a reminder, I don't know, um, for some people it might be new. Um, Schizophrenia is a diagnosis which is based only on symptoms. And all the symptoms on which the schizophrenia diagnosis is based have dozens of causes. Uh, what we call schizophrenia is almost certainly not a single illness with a single underlying cause. Um, I just explained to you how patterns of medication response actually tell you there are four different illnesses that go under the same name. Uh, let's go to the next slide. And because I'm a pharmacologist, I, I oftentimes, I sometimes give lectures and I say, being a pharmacologist means basically I love drugs. And one of the things I really like about drugs is I say drugs tell the truth. Uh, and I think in psychiatry, this is a very important thing to keep in mind because when it comes to psychiatric illness, we don't have a very good idea of all the possible causes but we do have a fairly good idea about what drugs are doing in bodies and brains. So drugs in a living system become your guides or your touchstones to physiological reality. And every treatment that you give has two purposes. The purpose, the primary purpose is to make a person better, but the drug is at the very same time, more or less trying to tell you, give you some reports about what's happening inside the body. So if I have a patient with fever and cough and I give them penicillin, the drug has told me that this was a gram-positive infection. 
if I give the same symptom, the patient with the same symptoms, penicillin, and they don't get better, then one of the explanations is that they don't have a gram-positive infection. Um, and similarly, if we give antipsychotic drugs which block dopamine receptors and the person gets better, that psychosis was, was related to excessive dopamine. But if we give those dopamine blocking drugs and they're not getting better, then probably that illness doesn't have anything to do with dopamine. Um, so I call those, for simplicity, dopamine psychosis. Yeah, we can move to the next slide. I call those dopamine psychosis and non-dopamine psychosis. In fact, if you, look, if you look more deeply, you'll find that probably what we call schizophrenia, we could rename it and eventually call it dopamine psychosis, glutamate psychosis, inflammatory psychosis, um, cannabis-associated schizophrenia-like psychosis, medical psychosis. So there are many, many different pathways, as I said. Um, but typical or you know non most antipsychotic drugs are dopamine blocking drugs and when they don't when a person doesn't respond then probably they don't have a dopamine psychosis um this article by house at the bottom of the of the slide is only three pages i encourage you to read it because it's a very compelling argument that what we call schizophrenia can be called high dopamine or normal dopamine psychosis and that explains why dopamine drugs sometimes don't work so let's move to the next slide um, and on, on this one, we'll just go to the last two bullet points. Um, in a person who's not responded to two therapeutic trials of ordinary antipsychotic drugs, literally, there's a single digit likelihood that the third regular antipsychotic drug is going to work. I, I take that back. There's a study of high-dose olanzapine, which I think had a 14% success rate. Um, Meanwhile, clozapine again and again is shown to be helpful in between half or slightly more than half of such cases. So when you have a case where a person's not getting, not moving to recovery with two adequately dosed trials of medicines, then this is the kind, this is the person for whom you really need to, to prescribe clozapine. Next slide, please. Um, and, uh, Yeah, to, 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 to further make the case, um, if we're aiming for recovery, we shouldn't delay that recovery because we know that the longer a person spends with psychosis, the lower their long-term prognosis becomes. Um, that may be, it's probably likely because the more time you spend with psychosis, that's time you're not going to school, getting work, maintaining relationships, um, and so forth. And that's time in which you are reinforcing unhelpful beliefs that you can't trust people, that you can't talk to people, um, that these, um, these mysterious forces that are causing these things are real. And uh, if you practice these beliefs for a long, long, long time, um, you dig a hole that becomes very hard to get out of. So we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't delay um, a therapeutic trial of clozapine for any reason. Next slide, please. And the last reason to, to um, remind you that clozapine is a good drug is because it's a life-saving drug. It's the, one of the only drugs that actually has a good signal for reducing suicide risk. Um, in this study by Meltzer and O'Kaley, we see that clozapine treatment um, actually reduced suicide risk in people with schizophrenia to more or less the same risk seen in people that don't have schizophrenia. Um, and in fact, clozapine's FDA indication says um, to address suicidality and schizophrenia spectrum illnesses. So next slide, please. Um, so then, um, 
one, I'm happy that I was able to finish before before uh, before the hour is up. And but I want I want to I want I want again thank you so much for having chosen psychiatry and for listening for listening to this lecture. But more importantly, I want to I want to thank you for your commitment to um, to the field of psychiatry and your commitment to improving the the, the lives of people that have mental illness. Um, you probably don't need to be reminded that schizophrenia and psychosis is a frightening and, and profoundly alienating experience, uh, but I want to remind you that you actually can change that. Um, we, we as clinicians can actively participate in reducing the stigma associated with disease simply by consistently aiming for recovery and getting people to that goal. Um, the more people with schizophrenia that achieve high levels of recovery, the more that some of those are going to go public with their stories and then the world at large will see that schizophrenia is an illness that is neurologically based that treatment for which treatment works and people recover um, so we can we, we can absolutely contribute to stigma reduction simply by um, not giving up and and thinking clearly and compassionately about about treatment uh, we it, it is not always possible to avoid side effects but it is sometimes possible, and it's certainly possible to minimize them. Um, so we should commit ourselves to doing that. And um, every person that I, every person with schizophrenia that I know who has had a very strong recovery has said something along the lines of, when I was ill, everything was, um, was, was, was awful. It was confusing. I, I felt like completely isolated. Um, but I went to, a clinic and I met this and they usually find one person. Sometimes it's a doctor, sometimes it's a caseworker, but it, it's always, I, I, I met this person who, who basically I felt comfortable with and who, um, who, who I could confide in and who basically was able to uh, be my ally as we move forward to recovery. Um, you all have the possibility of being that person. And I think that having that kind of person in the life of somebody newly affected is um, something that's not written about so much in literature, but I think is is intuitively obvious should be done. And um, I hope I've given you some tools to be able to do that job um, well. And I think we can, so I'm done with my presentation and I guess if we have, uh, yeah, we have options. So we have questions. So what can be a treatment option for steroid-induced psychosis? Um, the 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 near term option is is actually dopamine receptor antagonists. Um, so traditional antipsychotic drugs tend to work, um, as well as reducing reducing the dose of the steroid um, is the is the the next best thing. Thank you, Dr. Messamore, for this uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, we're going to open up uh, if anyone would like to ask any questions through the chat. Um, I have a question, actually. What, are you, what do you think are some upcoming breakthroughs uh, in the future for the treatment of schizophrenia since it's such a debilitating illness? Um, well, we have, we, the, 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 I think my, looking into the future, the near-term near possible breakthroughs are that we have a drug um, whose name I always butcher. I I've never heard anybody say this drug. So lumetaparone or lumetaparone, um, it, it's a serotonin antagonist. Um, and there are, 
to back up. In my talk, I talked about dopamine pathways and other pathways. I didn't mention serotonin, but LSD is a drug that activates serotonin receptors and causes hallucinations. And the second generation antipsychotic drugs, almost all of them are serotonin receptor antagonists. So we think that there might be some role for serotonin in mediating some manifestations of illness. Now that we have a drug which is primarily a serotonin antagonist, um, we might be able to parse out a serotonin psychosis or a serotonin subtype. Um, there is a drug under development that is going to be prominently involved in glutamate modulation and is being tested for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Um, if that drug comes to market, and from what I hear, it probably will, then we will have a, um, a tool which is going to be billed as a glutamate modulator. And lots of cases of clozapine responsive schizophrenia actually turn out to be um, have signals of glutamate dysregulation. So if we're going to have, we already have a serotonin antagonist, we're likely to soon have a glutamate modulator drug. And with that, for the first time in 50 years, we'll have um, a bunch of people who are learning that psychosis is a dopamine problem or a serotonin problem or a glutamate problem. Um, and we'll probably wind up um, having scientists generating imaging biomarkers or physiological or genetic biomarkers, which can help parse that. So I think, I think the big, we're about at the stage where we can deploy tests to classify schizophrenia physiologically. And from there, we'll be able to probably um, fine tune the, the pharmacological or other interventions for it. Think that's going to happen soon? And the um, I I still think that within my lifetime it can happen, um, and and most certainly with yours. Because <laughs> I mean, as I said, we we have we have drugs with new with with different mechanisms of action, and um, there's there's actually, you know, in the world of science, there's a whole bunch of work that's already been done to um, look at physiological subtypes of schizophrenia. We also have in other areas of medicine like genetic tests that will help to guide chemotherapies. So, so we're, we're, the concept of personalized medicine is, is, is like here and here to stay. And um, I, I'm, I'm, it's just about ready to enter psychiatry. And that's, that's gonna be giant in my opinion. The thing that's held psychiatry back for most of its modern life is that we settled on the idea of depression, actually insert diagnosis there, but we settled on the idea of depression as depression and something that you give serotonin drugs for. And the reality is what we call depression is probably 30 different pathways to it. Um, and uh, if we can personalize that treatment, we will, we will, we will probably undo the entire diagnostic structure. Uh, we might, I, I would say we might have a diagnosis that looks like depression with biomarker A, B, C, and then from those biomarker selections, you'll be able to match that to, to drugs or to psychotherapies or to brain modulation therapies. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, that is, we're gonna see that happening in our field. That's wonderful. Uh, we have a question from the chat. Uh, this gentleman asks, you mentioned that earlier treatment is associated with better outcomes. A lot of research is coming nowadays on pre-psychosis, population at risk of psychosis. What would be your take on screening pre-psychosis in at-risk populations and the possibility of preventing first episode. Yeah, we're still working on that. Um, there, there's a, it's, 
yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to confess the dirty little secret, or I mean, it's not that dirty, but, um, but we have the the field is well aware that shorter duration of psychosis leads to better outcome. Um, but I think you guys will find this useful. If families might hear that, and then they're going, or patients might hear that and think, uh, I'm screwed because I've been sick for six years. Um, and so, and, and let me, let me re, let me reorganize that. Um, the idea that long duration of illness is associated with poor outcome, that's repeatedly been shown. The effect size for that relationship is about 0.2 to 0.3, which is statistically significant, but small effect size. Um, and the idea that we should shorten the duration of psychosis and, and you know, develop early intervention, it, it drives research grants and it drives first episode clinics. So we, I mean, we're using that to justify what does make sense to do. But again, the effect size is small. So um, I've heard this from several family members um, that, they, that they think that all hope is lost because their, their loved one has been sick for many years. They're also scared because that relationship between long duration of psychosis and poor outcome has been capitalized on or monetized by pharmaceutical industry who, who when I was training came out with these ideas that psychosis is neurotoxic and certainly neurotoxicity could explain this relationship but neurotoxicity would have several predictions which we don't see um, that if this is toxic then people who have been very ill should be like having IQs of 20 um, or that there should be progressive shrinking of the brain or that there should be you know sign there should be more signs of a neurotoxicity than we actually see when we look at stuff um, and the competing hypothesis to explain this relationship is I mentioned it in my talk the more time I spend believing that I can't trust people the more I begin to build my life to be independent of the world and then when if i should be into treatment then i have lost all my friends um and i have built a self-sufficiency network that makes me not need so many friends and um and i didn't go to school and i didn't know i just you know i, I dig a deep social hole i have rehearsed psychological scripts that make me think that i'm a defective person or maybe that i'm an all-powerful person um, but whatever, they're not conducive to full recovery. And so this kind of learning phenomenon, as well as the psychosocial impoverishment, explains just as much of the relationship. And um, it is more actionable from our side um, and is less disturbing to families. So, so, there's, so there's that. Um, but what is, so on the, to come back to, but that early psychosis focus is still very important. And because of that, we are in fact looking at so-called prodromal states. And there are many clinics across the world which are set up to try to screen for at-risk populations or you know, evidence of the psychosis prodrome. Um, my understanding from that literature is that we have not really got a really good idea to predict what's gonna happen. Um, we, in other words, we, we have some screens, we have some screening instruments that will look for like attenuated psychosis symptoms or um, do, so yeah, we have some screening tools that can identify a person who's having attenuated psychosis or psychosis risk. If a person falls into prodromal risk category based upon current screening instruments, 
their likelihood that they're going to convert to schizophrenia is about 30%. So certainly better than just guessing, but it's not really a strong predictive ability. Um, but these, again, these clinics are going to probably, some of them are and more than will, um, start to look at physiological biomarkers or, or other sorts of things that might help to further, uh, to better our, our ability to predict it and um, certainly develop ways to intervene. And, and most of the interventions for prodromal kids are bolstering um, resilience factors, family support and psychological support. Um, the, so there's a question up on the top about um, immediate adverse drug reactions with clozapine therapy. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of them, and I will I will I should have put a slide, but I'll I will mention and I'll I'll send I'll send to you and you can maybe distribute. Um, four times per year, I do a clozapine training. Uh, sorry, but that's going to be at 6 p.m. my time, which is going to be like way late in your time zone. Um, I will send you the slides from that, and because we do address the um, the adverse drug reactions from clozapine, the the initial ones are sedation, um, orthostatic hypotension, and the, those are the two biggest ones. There, and and they, these are problems when you basically dose too fast. I mean, so if you introduce it at a low dose and do it very slowly, you can minimize those. Um, another common experience with clozapine is is hypersalivation. Uh, sialuria. The best treatment for that is either atropine um, drops or ipratropium nasal spray given under the tongue. So local anticholinergics under the tongue tend to work well for that. Um, the, the, the concern that everybody has with clozapine is that it, it kills white blood cells and that we're going to then cause our patients to die. The, the actual risk for significant drop of neutrophil count in the first year of treatment is under 1%. And if you take those people, then the, um, the risk of a, of, a, of a very serious drop is, is like a tenth of a percent. So essentially, it's an extremely low risk. And if you've made it through the first year with normal neutrophil counts, then the risk something something bad happening with neutrophil counts goes down to about a tenth of a percent. So it's, it's really, it, it's, and the, neutro, the neutropenia risk is not unique to clozapine. Actually, all second-generation drugs can drop neutrophil counts and, and almost to the same degree as clozapine can. So um, it's a, it, it caused alarm when it was first discovered, but it's actually, and it's worthwhile to know about, but I, I, I personally believe that, that that risk is overdone. The biggest risk of fatality from clozapine is from uh, complications of constipation. So, uh, and that also counts as an early adverse drug reaction. So it's, it's vital to pay attention to, to bowel health and uh, fairly easy to intervene with that. My favorite, my, 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 my top choice for dealing with that is essentially daily um, uh, Miralax, we call it here, um, propylene glycol laxative. Um, and that, that works well, but it really is important to, to screen for that. There are also the other kind of rare but serious risk from clozapine is um, irritation of the heart tissue. And so my recommendation is to do, before clozapine, to give them a C-reactive protein test as well as an EKG. Um, and that way, if they wind up with chest or cardiac complaints, you'll have a baseline numbers to, to judge that for. So thanks for that question.
Um, the, the question about aripiprazole, do, does aripiprazole work in patients that try to other sites? So, that's it. It's a, so the question is, does aripiprazole work in a person that's tried other, psych, other antipsychotic drugs? It certainly can, and it, it can be, it's, it's absolutely worth a try. Um, the, there's not a lot of writing about this phenomenon, but I do hear it from clinicians from time to time. And that may be that if other drugs, if other antipsychotic drugs are given first, then when a person is moved to aripiprazole, that there can be agitation or psychosis recurrence or worsening of agitation and psychosis. What I, what I, this is now Mesomore speculating, but what, what most likely happens here is that if you give a full antagonist as the first treatment, then all the time that this antagonist is on board, um, you're upregulating dopamine receptors. So the brain is making more dopamine receptors and it's actually making more receptors in a high sensitivity state. So now you've got that. You, you, the, unfortunately then, unfortunately, risperidone didn't work therapeutically and after three months, we're stopping it. The person now has upregulated dopamine system and a more sensitive dopamine system. And now we, and, and they have a psychosis prone brain. And now we add a drug, which is a partial agonist to those receptors. That may explain why we see a higher, these, these reports of agitation and psychosis when aripiprazole is drug number two. Um, I, I debated whether I should share this with the group. I, I, I thought not to include it in my slides, but I'll, I'll say it here now. Um, looking at the entire list of medicines that have been studied for people with first episode psychosis, I'm a very strong believer that aripiprazole should be treatment number one. Um, having said that, you all know it's going to cause akathisia or nausea or insomnia in a significant number of patients that take it. We can reduce this by giving it at a low dose and giving it with you know, lorazepam or something like that. But apologies, the neighbors are working on their yard. Um, but, uh, there are some studies looking at longer term outcomes, and those are better for people that were on aripiprazole to begin with versus paliperidone. Um, animal studies suggest that dopamine receptor upregulation is not likely to occur to the same degree with a partial agonist than it is with a full antagonist. So we have the possibility of not upregulating dopamine receptors um, with aripiprazole versus other drugs. We have Longer term, at least one longer term study saying that the outcome was better with aripiprazole. And we have an aripiprazole, a drug which has tablets, liquid, short acting injection, and long acting injection. So if a person does well with it, we can transition them to long acting injectable forms. So, it, I mean, it, to me, it looks like a compelling case for all other things being equal, preferring aripiprazole as the first choice. And we can also avoid that possibility of making aripiprazole a second drug and then provoking agitation or psychosis because they've upregulated from a first drug. So, um, so there's that. Uh, we're kind of tight on time, uh, Mr. Dr. Messamore, and we will, um, we will share your email and your contact with uh, our guests in case they have any further questions. Um, I really, really appreciate your time today and uh, the, your wonderful presentation. Thank you for taking the time for Q&A. And uh, I'd like to tell our listeners if they'd like to uh, follow Dr. Messamore. He's available on Twitter. He's available on Instagram. Uh, he's very active on Twitter. I actually found him on Twitter. 
Uh, I love his tweets. And, um, and also we are a, a volunteer group, the KPRC. You can find this on Instagram. Uh, and we do uh, lectures and discussions online. And we try to create a community of mental health professionals who are interested in developing the mental health services in the GCC and the Middle East and the Arab world. So thank you again, Dr. Messamore. Uh, and looking forward to working with you in the future, in the near future. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. And I, um, uh, I'm, I'm in, I have my job is such that I have uh, opportunities and time to answer questions. So feel free, anybody, to contact me, and I and I'll give away any of these resources that I mentioned um, to anybody that asks. So um, again, thank you all for your commitment to to the to the well-being of people with mental illness, and I wish you all the best in your work and training. Thank you.